Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. If you're able, I'd invite you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. To begin today, I want to ask you a question for which some of you are going to have an immediate answer in your mind. Others of you might have to think about the answer for this for a while. But the question is this. What's the worst advice you've ever been given? What's the worst advice you've ever been given? Again, some of you might immediately think of something. Some of you might have to think about it for a little while. Maybe it was in the financial realm. Maybe somebody said to you back in the day, don't invest in Google or Amazon. The internet's just a fad, right? Or maybe it was some bad MLM scheme or something. Or maybe it was with your time, how to invest your time. You should take up golf. It doesn't take much time. It's cheap. It's easy, right? Maybe it was relational. Follow your heart no matter what. Or maybe it was personal, something like believe in yourself. You do you. Those last couple are kind of complicated because there's some kernel of truth in them. There's a sense in which there might be times and places where there might be some truth to that. But I think if anyone followed those things completely and in every situation, it would turn out to be pretty bad advice. Well, from the 1970s Pennington family lore, I was remembering this week of a, of a moment when my two older sisters gave me some very bad advice. When I was a kid, I, was, I loved root beer And at our local diner, when they would serve root beer, they would put two straws in it rather than one so the waitress could distinguish between the root beers and the Cokes. And my sister said to me when I was quite young, do you know why there's two straws there? It's so you can stick them up your nose and inhale it. It tastes way better that way. So not good advice. Do not try this at home, right? 
So I was thinking this week about advice and what it is exactly. And, and I never really asked myself that question. How does advice work? How does one person saying something to someone else really work? How does that affect? And, and in this case, I think it's where actually thinking about the etymology or the origins of the word actually gave me an insight into what advice is that I'd never considered before. The word advice is just from the couple Latin words ad and videre, which means to, to look towards something. And what advice is, it's someone telling you, here's how to see the world and therefore how to be in it. Advice is where somebody is saying to somebody else, trust me, I have seen this and this is how it's gonna work out well for you. That's what advice really is. Bad advice doesn't have any effect if you don't trust the person and do it. But if you do trust bad or good advice, if, they learn, if you learn to see the world in a certain way and to be in the world in a certain way that they're encouraging you, that's the power of advice. I want you to keep that in mind for a moment when, and we'll return to our text of Genesis 3 that we just heard read. But to get up to that, I, I need to tell you that today we're actually starting a new sermon series that we're calling The Faces of the Fall. It's a six-week series during this time of Lent leading up to Easter. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to probe into the human condition of sin and what it means for us to be fallen, what it means for us to be disconnected from God and from each other, and what it means for sin to be in our lives and in the world. If you've been around, you may remember a few months ago, back before Advent, we did a series that was what I really loved. It was a series called Sacred, where we went through Genesis 1 and 2. And the reason we started there in Genesis 1 and 2 is because we wanted to, to show you what the Bible, how the Bible begins the story of what it means to be human, that everything that God created was good that God is good and everything he made is good. And we wanted to start there because that includes humanity and all the world. But that's not the only part of the Bible story. And in fact, the goodness and beauty that we do see still in the world and that we long for, obviously that doesn't explain our whole human experience. Because our lives and our world, they are marked by a lot of suffering and death and loss and heartache disappointment and cancers and ulcers and broken relationships and hurts and wounds. So to make sense of our lives, we need to understand certainly where the Bible starts with the goodness of humanity and the goodness of the world and the goodness of God, but also understand why we experience so much brokenness in the world. You see, the Bible is not just a, some old book of irrelevant stories and rules. It's actually a book of incredible wisdom from God that is trying to help us understand, give us a, a comprehensive and really nuanced explanation of what it means to be human and why we experience the world in the way we do. It's kind of like this. My, my wife, Tracy, some of you know, is an artist. She spends a lot of time in her art studio and she has this really bad habit that I've been trying to break, but I've given up now and that she drinks a Coke every day. I think that's bad, bad advice, I think. But she drinks the Coke every day and so she finally got around to buying herself an ice machine because it was way more convenient at her studio. Well, the ice machine broke. So being the industrious and adventurous person that she is, she decided she was gonna see if she could fix it and she's definitely smart enough and skilled enough to do that. So she took the cover off and saw this dizzying array of wires and tubes and all these things. And so she got the manual, she watched some YouTube videos and she tackled that thing. Well, it's kind of like that in the sense that God has given us Holy Scripture to enable us to understand how we are wired 
and how we're broken so that we can understand what God is doing to heal us. Now, the Bible is more than an instruction manual. It certainly is, but it's not less than that. God is giving us an understanding of what the world is like and what we are like. And so in this Face of the Fall series, what we're gonna be doing is tracing through some Old Testament stories to see what does God say, what has happened to us and what has happened in the world so that we can understand who he is for us in Christ. And today, we need to begin where that part of the story all begins way back in Genesis chapter three. If you have a Bible, we can pull it up on your phone. You can look there with me. There is so much going on in Genesis three. This is one of the most studied passages, you know, throughout history. So there's a million things I'm not gonna be able to say all this week as I was talking to various people, several people had various things I read, you know, lots of different things we could talk about in this chapter. But I wanna narrow it down to one question and that is, what exactly is the nature of sin? What's its mechanism? How does sin actually work? And then we'll see in the rest of the series other ways that it, it has effects. Now, so first, we just need to start with the story. What happens in this story in Genesis chapter 3? Well, remember, back in Genesis 1 and 2, that again, God created the world and everything was good except for the only thing that wasn't good was man being alone, but everything created was good. So it's very different than what you get in a lot of Eastern religions and Eastern philosophies, this yin and yang idea that there's two created forces or there are two forces in the world, a good and a bad that are battling. That's not the biblical worldview. God is the sole creator and everything he made was good. Okay, well then that leads to a huge question. How in the world and what in the world is evil? And how does sin come to, into a world that is completely good? And for thousands of years, both Jewish thinkers and Christian thinkers have wrestled with Genesis 3 to try to understand that. And I think the best answer is, when you put, it all, put the whole Bible together, is that evil is not a created thing in the same way that good is, because that would reflect God being evil and he's not, he's all good. But evil is always the distortion, the disordering, the perverting of something good. So evil and sin are not on the same level of other created things. They're always the, the disordering, the, the distorting of something that is good. And I think that's gonna be key to understand what we see in our story. So if you look at the first six verses of Genesis 3, what you'll see there is that you have a creature a crafty creature, a snake of some sort, somewhat mysterious at this point. Later on, the Bible will associate this serpent with Satan himself, a created fallen angel. Well, this serpent has a conversation with the innocent Eve, and it all starts with a question. Did God really say? It's an invitation to think about something in a different way to, with, a, with a seed of doubt sown in her mind. And it's important to note that the way that the crafty serpent directed Eve and then Adam, notice, was not by putting something bad in front of them. I think when you and I think of temptation, we often think of it as like there's something bad and then we want that bad thing. There was no bad thing. Everything created was good. He actually appeals to them by saying, look how beautiful and good and delicious that tree is. And that's exactly what Eve sees. If you look there, she sees that she turns her eyes towards the, the tree in the middle of the garden and sees that it was good and it was beautiful and it was desirable. And so she directs her gaze toward that. You see, this first deception 
was really dependent on desire, on the natural God-given sense that you and I all have for longing for things that are good and beautiful. Remember, sin is a corruption of this good. It's a perversion or a disordering of these good desires. And notice something else important and surprising, that everything that the serpent said in the midst of her, his deceiving her actually came true. In other words, there was a lie, but it wasn't in the technical sense of the things he said weren't true. After all, it's true. The fruit was good for food. Their eyes were opened. They did become more like God, knowing good and evil, all the things he said. And most surprisingly, they didn't die, at least not immediately, right? The expectation, I think, was that they were to take of this, and then by breaking God's law, they died, but they didn't. You see, it's what the serpent didn't say is where the deception really was found. While they didn't immediately physically die, of course, their innocence died, their intimate relationship with God, and eventually death would come to them and to all those in the world. All those things were lost. But the serpent had twisted the truth in such a way that the deception was in the fine print. It was in the catch. It was buried there like a razor blade in a juicy apple or the non-cancellation fee in your expensive timeshare contract that you didn't really read. This was the perverting of something good. It was not telling the whole truth so that they might be caught. And that leads into the second part of the story if you look down at verses seven and following. Sure enough, Adam and Eve's eyes were open. They did see things differently. Particularly, they became aware of their nakedness and they instinctively then sought to hide and cover their guilt and shame. And when God came to them and spoke to them, they hid. Just like a little kid, naturally, if they, they broke in mom's face, they hide. I remember when I was a kid doing these kind of things, running and hiding when I did something wrong, or, or even your dog who chewed through your MacBook power cable. Hiding becomes instinctual. You don't even have to think about it. And when Adam finally speaks up, when God's calling for him, God asks him what happened. And if you look at verses 12 and 13, if it weren't uh, so tragic, it would be funny because what you see in verse 12 is the first example of a 6,000 year plus human history of the blame shift. Do you see what Adam says? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Good job, Adam, right? Talk about the blame shift. And then he turns, God turns to Eve. She, she does a little better, actually. She admits that she did wrong, but there's a little bit of blame shifting going on for her too. We see in verse 13 that she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. At least she admits that she had been deceived, but she does still a little bit of blame shifting there. And these are just the beginning of what we see are the incredible knock-on effects, the consequences of human sin, fear, and shame becomes central parts of the human experience. We shift the blame toward others. Adam and Eve do this, you and I do this as well. It created enmity or strife between humans and between humans and animals and between humans and nature. And it creates in humans a different nature, a more rebellious nature. And ultimately, of course, it results in death. And throughout the rest of the Bible and human history, 
we're gonna see the effects of this moment work its way out. And again, that's what we're gonna be talking about for several weeks. But today we're asking from this familiar story, what actually happened? What is the fundamental mechanism of sin that trapped them and then therefore can trap us as well? And I think the problem, maybe unexpectedly from what you might think is this, I would describe the problem as a naive and foolish trust. A naive and foolish trust. You may have never thought of it this way, but I think the best way to understand the very mechanism of sin is that it boils down to trusting in a foolish and naive, naive way. You see, Adam and Eve, again, they weren't wrong in desiring the good. The thing that was set before them was good. That is how we're made. What their wrongness was, was that they, they list, listened to and trusted in the wrong voice. They learned to trust in the serpent's words instead of God's. God had already told them how to live, and now they started to listen to a different voice. And the foundation and origin of sin is, I think, this wrong kind of trusting, really trusting in the worst advice ever given, listening to the crafty voice of the serpent. As my good friend and Old Testament scholar Drew Johnson says it, just because the serpent is the most crafty creature in the garden doesn't mean he should be listened to. But that was exactly the problem with Adam and Eve. I know a lot of times we, I think a lot of times we describe sin as like rebellion and a desire for autonomy against God. And that certainly is true of us. I mean, that, that's a consequence of sin. But if you think of Adam and Eve, they, they, didn't have, they would have to have something negative or evil inside of them to desire to rebel. We don't see in the story that they're strolling through the garden saying, I'm gonna do it my way. We don't need God anymore. That's not at all. What really happens is a shift from instead of listening to God's voice, they start to listen to a different voice. Note that when God does show up and Adam finally comes out of hiding and speaks to him, did you notice what God says to him? He says, he doesn't say, why are you being independent? He says, who told you that you were naked? He puts his finger right on the issue of who were you listening to rather than to me. And I think we see this same mechanism, this fundamental way in which sin affects us all throughout the Bible as well. Think of, for example, the wonderful Psalm 1. Psalm 1, which paints this picture of two different ways to live, one of which is gonna result in destruction and one of which is gonna result in flourishing like a tree. Let me read the first few verses of it and just listen how it's all about whose counsel you're taking in, whose voice you're listening to. God says, blessed or happy is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight, that same, that's what Eden means, whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Or think of Proverbs chapter one, this book of wisdom where Solomon is writing to his son and is encouraging him to think about those with whom he spends time because that's gonna, that counsel is gonna affect what he experiences in life. Let me read for you several verses from Proverbs chapter one. <clears throat> He says, my son, 
If sinful men entice you, do not give in to them. If they say, come along with us, let's lie in wait for innocent blood. Let's ambush some harmless soul. Let's swallow them alive like the grave and whole like those who go down to the pit. We'll get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Cast lots with us, we'll all share the loot. My son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths, for their feet rush into evil. They are swift to shed blood. How useless to spread a net where every bird can see. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush only themselves. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. Instead, he says, out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square. On the top of the wall, she cries out. The city gate, she makes her speech. This reminds me of the old adage you may have heard that we all become a combination of the five people we spend the most time with. Start thinking about how true that is. Whatever it is, maybe it's habits, maybe you started hanging out with pickleballers and now you're a pickleballer and that's part of your life, that's awesome. Or people who invest in Bitcoin or people who take hikes or whatever it is. And as you spend time with people, the way God has made humanity, you become like those other people. It's okay. It's how God made us. But it means you have to be wise. Because what's happening is the voices of others, we are spring-loaded to listen to the voices of others. We need, we are limited in understanding. And other people are constantly showing us by example and by their words how to see the world and be in the world in a certain way. And the whole book of Proverbs is based on this idea. Are you listening to Lady Folly? Are you listening to lady wisdom? Wisdom being this personification of God's own voice. When I was a kid, I remember seeing this sort of literary um, technique a lot or in cartoons, et cetera, of an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other, right? <clears throat> I don't see this as much anymore <clears throat> in cartoons, et cetera, <clears throat> excuse me, but <clears throat> I used to see this a lot. And I was talking to somebody about that this week and and they mentioned the, one of the last drawn Disney movies, The Emperor's New Groove. Remember that one, right? <clears throat> so my daughter Emma and I watched it for sermon research purposes on Friday night. And sure enough, there was Kronk, this bodyguard who has that, an angel and a devil that looks like him on the shoulder. And all throughout, he's got to make these decisions. And this, you know, one's telling them one thing. So the, at one point, the devil says to, the, to Kronk about the angel, he says, he's trying to lead you down the path of righteousness. I'm going to lead you down the path that rocks, right? I mean, this is the kind of mindset, right? Well, while there's nothing in the Bible that makes us think that we all have like an angel and a devil on our shoulders, I think there is something profoundly insightful about that image. And that is that we are all constantly making choices and the making of those choices is informed whether we're aware of it or not by voices, by voices that are telling us things about how to see and be in the world. And that's really what faith is. Faith is not just this set of cognitive things I agree with that's true about God and Jesus. Faith is where you are trusting in someone else to, to, to tell you and show you how to live. And the question is, what are you putting your faith in? What voice are you listening to? And that bad choice of listening to the wrong voice is what set sin into motion in Adam and Eve's lives, and I think it's still true for us today. So the question is, what do we do with this? 
If that's true, that this fundamental mechanism of sin is a foolish trusting, a wrong listening, I think there's a question, an honest question we need to ask ourselves today. And that's this. What voices are you listening to? What voices are you trusting in, especially ones that are not from God and that are going to bring destruction and foolishness and sin deeper into the house of your life? Maybe it's materialism. Maybe it's saying that, that you hear this voice telling you that life is gonna be found if I own and maintain a bunch of great stuff. Maybe the American dream, some version of it, that, that I will have a good life when I can be independent and have a family and a house and cars and the freedom to do what I want. And once I have all those things, then I'll be happy. That's a pretty strong voice for all of us that you may not be even aware as a voice. Maybe for many of us, we so long to, to be included in a group. Maybe you high schoolers or any age, really, we all long to be included in a group. And so that voice there that's saying, just, just go along with whatever. It's okay to compromise whatever on my morals. Or I know I'm not supposed to do these things. These things are bad for me, but I, I need so much to be accepted. Maybe that's the voice. Or maybe for some of you, it's straight up hedonism. You just are trying to maximize pleasure in your life. And no matter what that costs you in terms of your integrity, your commitments, cheating, deceiving, you will do that because you long for pleasure. Maybe it's security. Maybe a voice is telling you, I can't give to the church. I can't be generous with my time or money because I've got to make sure I've got enough for me. Maybe it's that advice of follow your heart no matter what, just do you, no matter what, cost, what it costs other people. Maybe it's my husband or wife doesn't love me enough, so I'm gonna find that love from someone else. Maybe that's a voice. Maybe it's a message of shame and guilt that you think is from God but isn't, that's driving you away from God and his people, a message of condemnation that, you, you've, that is playing over and over in your head that's driving you away from God. Maybe there are questions you have about the faith. Is the Bible true? Is Jesus the only way? Is all, does all this matter? It's very normal as a human to have those kind of questions in, see, in season and out of season. God's not anxious about those questions. I'm not anxious about those questions. Happy to talk with you about any of those things. But let me encourage you to pay attention when you're having those questions. What voices are you listening to to get those questions answered. Maybe actually read the Bible if you're wondering about whether the Bible's true. Spend some time reading the Bible. Don't just listen to another podcast about all the problems. And I think many of us, I'll say, take in way too much news. Like I hardly take in any news in my life and I think I'm very happy as a result. I've had a head cold this week. I've, been, I've stayed at home some and, and the whole situation and Eastern Europe and Ukraine has been very much on my heart. And so I've actually watched quite a bit of BBC and CNN and other news. And I'm aware of how addicting it is and how shaping it is as well. And I think a lot of you probably take in way too much news, to be honest with you. And it, and it doesn't shape you in good and healthy ways. But I'll let you fill in the blank. What voices are you listening to in your head that are guiding you daily? And where do those come from and what are they saying? 
And here's what we need to realize, friends. We, we all have a choice of what voices we're going to listen to. Would you take the advice of someone who hates you and wants to destroy you? If you can imagine an enemy of yours that doesn't like you and wants ill for you, would you take their advice? No, you wouldn't. If you were walking downtown, you pass by a dark alley and there's a suspicious looking guy that opens his trench coat and says, wanna buy a watch, right? Or whatever it is, you, you're not gonna trust that person. So too, why are you taking advice from your sinful nature and the world and the devil when none of those things want what's good for you? Where God does want what is good for you. This is such a fundamental reality of this foolish and wrong and naive trusting. Now, hear me clearly. I know when I went through that list, I know humans and I know you well enough that some of you, maybe that could cause you some harm for me to ask this question and kind of, kind of cause you to, to go into this kind of morbid introspection. You already feel guilty and you're, always, you're already worried that God doesn't love you because you're not doing well enough and you're not doing enough. And when I said all those things, then maybe that could spin you into this cycle of, I already feel so much guilt and shame. That's not for you. That's not my point. And a loud voice in your head of God shaming you and making you feel guilty is not from God. God's voice is one of warmth and love and welcome. He's always inviting you to life. So my point in this is not to burden you with another voice saying, you need to work harder. That's not the point. But for many of you here today, maybe probably most of us, I think we do probably need to start paying more attention, intentional attention to the voices that are shaping why we live the way we do, whether it's materialism or hedonism or self-protection, whatever it is. And to be very practical, I don't wanna just leave this up here. How can you get better voices into your life? Well. One thing is that there's a real call to be in community with other believers. As Proverbs says, there's wisdom in many counselors. You should, you should be involved with and you should seek out the counsel of wise people who know God and who live good lives. You should come to church. Some of you probably need to come to church more often than you do. I'm not trying to guilt you into it. I'm trying to invite you that you need and you and I need a regular input of wisdom from God. Maybe you should go to Bible study, men's or women's Bible study, be involved in a community group. In fact, be in places where you can be totally honest about who you are and hear wisdom and see the model of wisdom from other people. We all need that. Because you're being influenced by some place or some voice either way. So why not align yourself with goodness? And also read your Bible. This is why, again, God has given us Holy Scripture so that we can understand his character and his love and his faithfulness toward us. Yesterday, someone shared with me how meaningful this verse had been to them, Isaiah 54, 10. God says, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. That's a good text to memorize. Let that voice be in your head. Or I've been meditating the last few weeks a lot on Psalm 16. And I want you to, I want to read this Psalm for you. I want you to listen to how it's talking about how it's God is shaping our understanding of who he is by us listening to his counsel. 
the psalm says, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their name on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So much goodness and beauty in that. Can I encourage you this week to maybe just memorize one line from that? For me, I really love that line early on, you are my Lord, apart from you, I have no good thing. To just let that become a big part of the voice that you're hearing as you go throughout your day. You are my Lord, apart from you, I have no good thing. Because here's the deal, friends. There is something bigger and more beautiful than the foolishness of sin that the world and sin is, is offering you. Adam and Eve were given the whole garden with a commission to expand it throughout the world in beauty and joy, and they end up in the devastated wilderness. Why? Because they trusted in the wrong voice. God's voice to you and me today is an invitation to pleasures forevermore, now and forever. He's inviting you into goodness. The only thing holding us back is our own foolishness of not in listening to his voice. Now, I never thought I would want a Pomeranian, but our two Pomeranians have changed my life. And I, and I am a classic meme of the dad who refused to, to get the dog, and now that dog is very close to me, right? I, I am that. Well, our Pomeranians, I'll speak of Mabel in particular, she's very smart, and she loves anything paper, Kleenexes, paper towels, napkins. If you turn your eyes for a second, she will steal your napkin or she will dig in your pocket to get a, a napkin or anything out of there. She's very smart. Well, as a result, we, she just this morning destroyed a whole box of Kleenex before I came to church. That was fun. Uh, but as a result, we don't want her getting all into these paper products. So we've learned that if we say to her, trade, right? She'll drop whatever she's got and take a treat instead, right? Now, I know if you're a dog psychologist, you're probably saying, you're part of the problem. You're extenuating the problem here by, by encouraging her to take things and then you give her a treat. Okay, fair enough. But it's worked that to say, <laughs> we'll give you a treat if you'll drop that other thing that isn't good and give you something so much better. Friends, be smarter than our Pomeranian. God is offering you life and life in abundance. If you will continue to listen to his voice, he wants your good. But so often we choose the lesser thing and listen to the foolish voices that may sound good now, but will actually only lead us to destruction. 
Now the serpent, as many theologians have observed, the serpent offered food to Adam and Eve that would lead to destruction. Jesus offers us food that leads to life. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.